Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. Joining me on today's episode is Shannon O'Neill. She is the Vice President and the Deputy Director of Studies, as well as a Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. I've asked Shannon to join me today because I want to talk a little bit about Latin America, get her insights on something that's happening right now in the United States, which is the Summit of the Americas, which is taking place in Los Angeles over the next few days, actually, as well as get her opinion on the recent Colombian elections, which their second round will be taking place in a couple of weeks. And a little further in the year, the Brazilian elections. Let me just give a quick background on what is the Summit of the Americas. The Summit is a gathering of leaders from the Western Hemisphere, and it is the only global meeting that convenes most of the heads of states of the Americas. It happens every three years, and this year the United States is the host country. They've set up a theme, which is building a sustainable, resilient, and equitable future. And Probably a little unfortunately, it's become a little bit controversial, which I think I'll let Shannon walk you through why that is. But let me just say, Shannon, thanks again for joining us. If you could give a brief overview of the summit, the topics for discussion, and of course, a little bit on the controversy. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And as we're taping this, the summit is just about to start. The last couple of days, people have been in Los Angeles meeting in sidebar meetings. Civil society has been there. Private sector actors have been there. And then it starts today for the next couple of days with the heads of government. The controversy is not all of the heads of government are going to be there. There are some that are missing. The president of Mexico, López Obrador, is one of them. Several of the Central American presidents are not coming In the end, 20 plus heads of state are coming. For those places where they're not, you see foreign ministers or other ministers that will take their place and also represent the interests of their country in the discussions that happen. So overall, I think in the end, you have the right people at the table to talk about these issues, about a resilient future for the Western hemisphere going forward. And in that, there are a number of issues that are going to be on the table. There are going to be migration issues. That's something that all of Latin America is experiencing. We talk a lot about migration to the United States and what's happening at the U.S. southern border, but in absolute terms and in proportional terms, Latin American nations have been taking more migrants in and particularly Venezuelans in. There's six million Venezuelans that have left their country and most of them have stayed in Latin America, going to Colombia and Ecuador and Chile and Peru and Panama and many other countries. We see the movement of Nicaraguans, we see the movement of Central Americans, we see the movement of Mexicans and Haitians and many others. So this is a big issue that really affects all countries. Another issue we're going to see is talk about health. COVID is not over, as we know, throughout the world and particularly in the Western Hemisphere. And this is a hemisphere that has been hit quite hard by the pandemic. So one is how do you deal with the ongoing health issues, but then also how do you help economies recover and get back the dynamism that was lost with the pandemic and the shutdowns? So we're going to see economic issues put on the table. And then we're also going to see other kinds of human capital issues. Lots of talk about things like education and health and social services and like, because those are the issues that we have seen have been really revealed over the last couple of years, deficiencies in lots of countries around the region. So that is something too, that I think all of the countries are going to want to talk about. You know a lot about U.S. policy in the region. 
And we haven't heard that much during the Biden administration about Latin American policy, with the exception of the migration problem you mentioned earlier. And obviously, that's much more about what's happening at the border between the United States and Mexico. Is this a chance for the Biden administration to really kind of start setting, you know, this is our policy, this is the way we're thinking of Latin America, and kind of broaden out a lot of the issues so that it's not just about what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border? It is an opportunity. I think it's an opportunity to do two things. It's an opportunity to look at U.S. Latin America policy or U.S. policies with particular countries, whether it's agreements over migration or whether it's agreements over, you know, there's some Central American issues there and you're seeing some announcements of the U.S. helping the private sector expand their role in in some of the aid packages and the like, civil society organizations. There's an announcement of a sort of Central American service corps that USAID and others are going to support. So you're seeing some of those specific policies, but I think as interesting and perhaps as important, if not more important, you're seeing the Biden administration develop a Latin America policy that has to do with their broader domestic and global policies. So you're going to see how the Biden administration thinks about Latin America when they look at issues of climate change and climate resilience. We're doing that at home in the United States and in other countries around the world. And so how will the U.S. administration work on climate change issues with Latin America? That's going to be front and center. And the other issue I think you will see some movement on and a lot of discussions, particularly in the sidebars that are happening, is where Latin America fits into the growing U.S. industrial strategy to secure resilient supply chains. We have seen that be a big focus of the Biden administration efforts, you know, looking and mapping out U.S. supply chains, lots of efforts to begin to reshore some of these supply chains, particularly in critical or strategic areas, but then also to nearshore or friendshore, pick your term that people like to use, but how do you find other nations that you feel that you can have secure supply chains and access to production and critical minerals, critical goods such as you know large capacity batteries that go into electric vehicles, into pharmaceuticals, into other kinds of things that the U.S. knows that they need for national security reasons. And there too, I do think that Latin American nations can play a constructive role for the U.S., but also a constructive role for their countries to become a source of these various minerals, but also of a manufacturing base that the U.S. can tie into. So that leads me very well into my next question, which was, so last week on my podcast, I talked about Biden administration's policy towards Asia. And one of the parts I tried to emphasize was their Indo-Pacific economic partnership. And the Indo-Pacific economic partnership in some respects is to try to say, we're going beyond trade agreements or we're going in a different way than trade agreements. And we want to build out a partnership that addresses some of the issues you just mentioned, such as climate change, such as supply chain issues. Do you see the Biden team trying to do something similar to what they did in Asia or a little bit different? And I will say that there is a criticism of what this Indo-Pacific partnership is, which is that it's not very concrete. It just seems like it's kind of a little loosey-goosey negotiating to get to a negotiation type of thing. And so how do you see this playing out in a Latin America context? They are doing something quite similar. In fact, Biden in his speech will announce what he's calling the America's Partnership for Economic Prosperity. So I don't know if that rolls off the tongue like IPEF does, but it is a similar set of pillars and it has pillars that are somewhat parallel to those that are in the Asia Pacific Agreement. So climate change issues, supply chain issues, trade, digital issues and the like. There's a couple other ones there that are bespoke for Latin America, focus on social contracts and human capital building and, and protections. But overall, it is also an offer to negotiate partnership and how you might work together on these issues. So it's still a lot of to be decided what the content becomes, but it is a framework. 
I would say one thing that's different between U.S. Latin America economic ties and U.S. Asia ties is that the United States actually has a lot of free trade agreements with countries in the region, which they do not in Asia. They have South Korea, they have Singapore, but they really don't have a lot across Asia. The United States has free trade agreements with 13 nations in the Western Hemisphere. So you already in many of these cases have removed tariffs, have removed some non-tariff barriers. So that's not the challenge as much for these commercial relations. There's other things there, right? There is issues of logistics, there's issues of customs, there's issues of other non-tariff barriers and the things that slow or impede trade between these countries. And I do think there is space in this framework that's developing with the countries in the region to take on some of those issues. There's also a need to update some of these agreements. These were some of the first free trade agreements that the United States signed. And so some of them need a refresh in terms of things that have moved on. You know, the world now has the internet and e-commerce and things that it didn't have in the 1990s when some of these were signed. So there's space there. We've seen an updating of what was NAFTA, now the USMCA with Mexico and Canada. And there's probably some space with some of the others to add some elements that are now that are sort of the normal parts of free trade agreements. Actually, that's a great point. I was one of the negotiators of a few of those agreements in Latin America, and I think updating is a very good point. Again, a critique of the IPEF is the lack of market access. We're not pursuing it and we're not giving it. At least that's the problem, it seems. And you make a good point, which is that may not be the issue here. It may not be a market access issue. So criticism of Latin America in general has been economic growth has been largely tepid. I mean, there's exceptions, of course. The Russia-Ukraine situation doesn't harm Latin America as much, although maybe it will in terms of the importation of inflation or the problem of it slows down the rest of the world economy. And so that could harm Latin America. But Latin America is a commodity exporter. Commodity prices are up. So I, I was thinking about the economics in a couple different ways. One is a little bit the fallout from Russia-Ukraine, but a little bit like what can they get out of an agreement, a partnership agreement with the United States? Well, one big change that's happening today, and you know, Russia-Ukraine is part of this, but I would say the bigger part are the U.S.-China tensions and the fallout that we've seen there is, I do see today a you know, once-in-a-generation fluidity in supply chains. And you know, talk to CEOs, talk to companies, all kinds of companies, and boards of companies are considering, if not actively, moving parts of their supply chain. They're doing it for logistical reasons. It's too costly to have distance, whether because of COVID challenges or because of the need to be nearer to their customers. That extra day or that extra week or two on a boat costs them orders. They're doing it because of tariffs that have come up in the U.S.-China standoffs or other kinds of challenges. And you know, Russia-Ukraine really brought home how quickly and abruptly the rules of the game can change if you have a diversified and very far flung supply chain. So I do think this is a moment when you're seeing a lot of fluidity with companies thinking about moving around where they produce things. And so this is an opportunity for Latin America. Frankly, when you go back over the last 30, 40 years, Latin America has not benefited from this. They have not won in that creation of global supply chains. They were really left on the margins of them. They were either the raw commodities producer from the tail end of the supply chain or the final consumer, but they didn't really capture any of that value added manufacturing production in the links along the chain in between. Much of that went to Asia for lots of reasons or other places around the world, also Europe and Eastern Europe and the like. As we see this moving around, I think there's an opportunity for Latin America and particularly given US concerns about geopolitics, about secure supply chains in a host of different industries, they have an option, particularly with the United States to be one of those links to sort of change their economic basis and add some manufacturing or add some production and processing that they don't really have. 
Now, whether they'll do this or not is an issue, but I do think this is what's on the table for these countries is can they make themselves attractive to bring in some of that? It doesn't have to be all of it, but just bring in some of that and more of that. And that comes down to logistics, that comes down to access, that comes down to labor pools, it comes down to infrastructure that is useful and and helps lower the costs for producers that come in. And it comes down to making it a business environment where private sector companies, which at least the U.S. companies will be, will want to invest and feel that they have a good environment to work in. The benefit, as we talked about, Latin America has free trade agreements with the United States, so they have preferential access to the U.S., plus they have some investor arbitration mechanisms and the like that can make multinationals feel like they have an ability to recourse in case something goes wrong. But Latin American countries really need to step up and do more if they want to bring a larger percentage of this moving around of global production that's happening right now to their shores. I want to switch a little bit and go a little more towards politics. There's an interesting point that has been happening in Latin America. It seems like we've seen recent elections in Chile and Peru and Honduras and a little earlier in Mexico where you seem to have populist leftist candidates who won. But as I looked a little more carefully, it seemed like it wasn't just that. It would seem like it was just an anti-incumbency type of thing. Brazil had somebody from the populist right version. So why is this happening in Latin America where it seems like if you're an incumbent, you're in danger. You're not going to win. And is there something that's happening in Latin America that that is the purpose? Or is it more like, hey, no, actually, there's much more of a leftist kind of whinge within the region that's happening? So I would agree. I think this is an anti-incumbent wave that's happening. And there's maybe three reasons why it's happening. One is that voters are frustrated with the quality of life and their prospects going forward. Voters in Latin America, like voters in the United States, often vote in their pocketbooks, and their pocketbooks don't look so good right now. This is a region that really suffered from COVID in terms of illness, in terms of fatalities, also in terms of the economic effects getting hit really hard. So people are just starting to recover. We have seen a big increase in poverty levels over these last two plus years under COVID. We've seen increases in informality, so people's jobs are much less secure than they were in the pre-COVID days. So all of those are frustrations. Things like corruption haven't ended. The violence and insecurity that plagues many of these countries, that hasn't ended. So there's a lot that voters are upset about. So that's one reason. Another reason is that Latin America is still largely democratic, and it's one of the most democratic areas in the world outside of Europe. So voters actually have a chance to go and vote and throw out the people that they feel haven't served them well and haven't you know, met the policy promises that they have made. So that's another reason. And then finally, I would just put this in the larger context. It isn't just Latin America we're seeing this anti-incumbent wave. I mean, look at the United States. Um, A lot of our politics is polarized and people are looking for outsiders. That's also sweeping Eastern Europe. It's sweeping lots of countries around the world. So I do think it is a moment of uncertainty, of volatility, of worry around the world. Inflation is adding to that in many countries. And so there is a tendency where you have a chance to vote for people to look for those that are promising change. It's a great point. In the United States, I joke around a little bit about it, but like when I was growing up, it would take 20 or 30 years before you would have swing elections. Now we have them every two or four years. I mean, (laughs) so it's a very good point. And let me turn towards one of the biggest elections that is happening in the region, which is the Colombian elections. Colombia had its first round of elections recently, and you had two candidates who are not the typical Colombian presidential candidate. Gustavo Petro is from the, I guess I would put him as the left-wing candidate. He won 40% of the vote in the first round. 
And then you have an independent populist who, at least as somebody who doesn't follow it as carefully as you, thought this guy came out of nowhere, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez, who won 28%. So they both exceeded the kind of more conservative candidate who is much more kind of status quo type of candidate, Federico Gutierrez. Maybe you can talk a little bit about these two candidates and how you see the second round of elections taking place. And can Hernandez pick up some of the Gutierrez vote to win or is Petros 40 percent? He just needs a little more to get over the top. I think a lot of Colombians would agree with you that he came out of nowhere, but he really came out of a middle sized city where he had been mayor. You know, it, it is a question what happens when you look at. The earlier rounds in the primaries, Petro seemed to have a ceiling where he would just get to a certain number that wasn't 50% even in the second round. So many people thought that, especially if Gutierrez had come through and gotten to the second round, the establishment, the conservative side would would rally behind him. Now Colombians are, are faced with a choice where they have a leftist, but someone who is actually now the establishment candidate because he actually has been in politics for many years, which Hernandez really has not. And he is perhaps rightist, but he's more of this populist where he's a bit of an amalgam. And in fact, in interviews that he's given in the last couple of weeks, he shows his affection for Lopez Obrador in Mexico, as well as Bukele in, in El Salvador, which is an odd mix of bedfellows, I would say, in terms of where you put yourself on the policy spectrum, which is he's not really putting himself on the policy spectrum, but he is talking about his outsider credentials. And that's how I think he hopes to win. We will see where this ends up. It's really a toss up. The polls that I've seen are really a statistical tie. And so it's hard to see where one goes. But it is interesting how we have seen just an overturning of you know what was the conventional wisdom for decades in Colombia, which is that someone from the establishment, whether the right or the center right, usually in Colombia was going to win, that there was it was pretty established where their politicians were going to come from. And now whoever will be the next president of Colombia will be a sea change from decades of government's past. Well, it'd be hard to figure out until we have a little more clarity on how they would deal with the United States. Colombia, in many respects, I would say, is the U.S.'s best friend in the region. Or is it like, hey, it's a little bit of a mystery here because we have two very different types of candidates and two parties that really haven't been in power. So it's a little hard to see how things will play out between them and the United States. I think that is it. It will be hard to see. Neither of them so far profess to have the warm relationship with the United States that so many of the past Colombian presidents have from the get-go. So it will be a feeling each other out on both sides. There are things I would say that the U.S. probably agrees with, with, with both of the candidates. Uh, you know, uh, Petro has a pretty strong environmental discourse and, you know, the Biden administration cares a lot about climate change and shows that across. So there are areas there where they could work together. Hernandez has been very less clear about what his policies will look like. So we will cut, we'll have to see where that takes them. But overall, what we are seeing here, I think, is going to be a different Colombia that we've seen in the past. So it'll be starting with new relationships with the United States uh, in ways that you know, we really haven't seen for a couple of decades, and particularly since the United States and Colombia began working together on Plan Colombia and some of that partnership that was in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Well, thank you very much. We'll look forward to that election. And then the big election, because it's the biggest country in the region, is Brazil. And so Brazil will have their presidential elections in October. The two leading candidates, as far as I can tell, are former President Lula, who is from the Workers' Party and more from the left, and current President Bolsonaro. He's from the Liberal Party and more of a populist from the right, I guess. 
maybe you could talk a little bit about the background of these candidates and, you know, how do you see this playing out? And are these really going to be the two candidates or is somebody else going to rise up that probably is an American I just haven't paid enough attention to? These are going to be the two candidates. There have been a couple others who have tried to throw their hat in the ring, but they've been pushed out with, you know, very low polling numbers and, and all the oxygen sucked out of the race except for these two. Brazil is another case of you know, this anti-incumbent wave, Bolsonaro hitting very tough headwinds of, of frustration with what he has done over his last three plus years. It's a little bit ironic that the anti-incumbent waves brings in a former president and someone who's been a stalwart of Brazilian politics since the 1970s under the dictatorships, who's been there through and through. But, but that's where we are in Brazil. You know, you're bringing back Lula as the anti-incumbent. But here we go. You know, the way things stand now, it looks like Lula will be the next president. And it's hard to see on the economic front, on the social front, on the political front, anything that really would provide an impetus to push Bolsonaro in a different direction. He's, you know, facing growing inflation, economic difficulties and stagnation, as well as other frustrations, social frustrations and the like. So I think this really is Lula's election to lose at this point. Lula comes from the Workers' Party traditionally, so from the left of the spectrum. Bolsonaro is one of those outside, you know, rightist populists. He has very socially conservative views. He has been maybe not an advocate, but very allowing of deforestation, not at all interested in the environment and those issues in Brazil, which frankly has made him an international pariah in many places. You see the EU Mercosur agreement, which was the European Union and the Southern Cone countries came finally to a free trade agreement, but that's been put in ice in terms of ratification because of the deforestation that's happening, because of the environment degradation happening in Brazil. So it's held back Brazil's economy, many of these things. And you've also seen investors pull out of Brazil. They don't want to be associated because they have ESG constraints. Uh, you've also seen companies that will no longer source from Brazil, particularly in beef and leather, because they're worried about deforestation, particularly European countries, companies like H&M and Sainsbury, the grocery store chain and other things like that. So overall, I do think we're going to see Lula as the next president of Brazil. And, you know, that will shake things up in that country. It will bring in an anti-incumbent wave. Thank you very much. I have one last question, which is Mexico doesn't have an election coming up, at least in the next few months, as far as I know. But it is interesting. We as Americans, our neighbor is Mexico. And the president, AMLO, has decided not to go to the Summit of the Americas, as we mentioned earlier. But I think I saw that he will be coming to Washington to meet bilaterally with Joe Biden. So how is the U.S.-Mexico relationship, at least at this point in time? I mean, there seems to be some negatives and maybe some positives. I would say overall, the U.S.-Mexico relationship is complicated, and it is always complicated, in part because there's so many issues that touch on the two countries. There is migration. That's obviously a big one that the two countries are grappling with right now. There are economic issues and commerce. The two countries are the biggest trading partners for each and the other, so they're up there and quite important on that side. There are border issues that deal with security, that deal with flows of people and goods and, and contraband and all kinds of other stuff. There are environmental issues and water issues and air issues and a whole host of other issues. So this is one of the most complicated relationships for the United States and then also for Mexico. So with all of that as a prelude that it's always complicated, it is complicated today as well, particularly because add to all of those just nitty gritty transactional parts of the relationship, you add on very different 
governments and, and inclinations on, on the governmental side between the two governments. Um, you have a government in Mexico that really is centralizing power around the, the president and his party that is weakening some of the democratic checks and balances that have been built up in Mexico over the last two to three decades, sort of hard fought democratic, you know, accountability mechanisms and the like that are being eroded. And that's something that I think the United States, obviously, part of the values that we have is, is a stronger democracy. And I think we're not seeing that. We see differences between the two presidents in terms of their focus and interest on environmental issues. You know, AMLO is is focusing on, and as far as I know, he is the only president in the world, or I say the only country in the world that is doubling down right now on fossil fuels for the long future, rather than making a transition. Even Saudi Arabia and other big fossil fuel producers are looking toward a green future, and Mexico is not doing that. And obviously, you have a, a neighbor uh, in the United States that is thinking about that green transition and and how to get to that place. So there are a lot of differences of opinion and different types of policies there. I do think AMLO not showing up at the Summit of the Americas has been a big headline and fair enough. Lopez Obrador has not gone to really any international gatherings. He skipped the G20, he skipped the UNGA, he skipped most of these. So this is not totally surprising that he didn't want to leave home to come to an international gathering. But I do think the bilateral meeting that will happen in July in Washington does show that even with these difficulties, even with these complications, it's important for both countries and they both see that. So you will continue to have discussions, you'll continue to have disagreements, you'll continue to agree to disagree on some issues. But I do think you will see the various bureaucracies, you know, the state departments of both countries, the agricultural departments, the com commercial departments, the homeland security departments, all of these and many, many more, dozen more, continue to work together on the things that matter for people and businesses businesses and communities on both sides of the border. Thank you very much, Shannon, for joining Earn Account. It was a real pleasure and I learned a lot. So thanks again for joining me. It was my pleasure, Clay. Thanks for having me on. Let's wrap up with the three, two, one. That is my three takeaways, my two things to watch, and my one sports fact. The three takeaways. The Summit of the Americas is taking place right now in Los Angeles with such key topics as migration, increasing access to social services, the COVID recovery, and climate change, as well as just kind of broader economic issues. The summit, unfortunately, has been tainted by the tension of the U.S. decision to exclude leaders from Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Next, Colombia is following Latin America's recent anti-incumbency trend with the two finalists running a very tight race for president on the promise of being outside the establishment, decreasing inequality, and reducing government corruption. And third, the world is closely watching who will be the front runners for Brazil's election, which are scheduled to take place on October 2nd. Right now, as Shannon said, the left-wing former president Lula is leading in the polls against current right-wing president Bolsonaro. He is running on a message that he will reunite Brazil after it was divided under the Bolsonaro presidency, and it would follow this same trend of being anti-incumbent. The two things on my radar. First, I'm interested to see what comes out of the Columbia runoff elections, which are now scheduled to take place on June 19th. Will the populist Hernandez keep his momentum, or will the more leftist Petro strategy to get enough votes to overcome the 50% margin? And next, 
Biden is scheduled to meet with AMLO, who's the president of Mexico. And as noted in our broadcast, AMLO stated that he would not attend the Summit of the Americas due to the White House's decision we mentioned earlier to exclude leaders from the summit. But he did state that he will have a bilateral meeting with Biden. Mexico is a key ally to the United States and our neighbor, and it is important to watch what, as Shannon again described, is an extremely complicated relationship. So we'll look forward to seeing that in July. My one sports topic for today is about women's college softball. Last week, the University of Texas at Austin beat Oklahoma State 6-5, which puts Texas in the Women's College Softball World Series Championship, where they will play Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma. One of the remarkable things from the game between Texas and Oklahoma State was that Oklahoma State was the favorite, and they had scored a variety of runs in the first three innings. However, despite the rough start, Texas came out victorious and surprised everyone by making their first finals ever in the College World Series. In college softball, the way it works is 64 college teams get to play in the tournament championship that started on May 20th. Texas is one of the finalists. The other one is Oklahoma. Oklahoma is the clear favorite, the defending national champion, and one of the more successful college softball teams there is. They will play a best of three series to see who walks away from the national championship. Over the last few years, we have all faced a lot of what I would call bad contagion. But if you want to see why contagion can be a good thing, I strongly suggest watching these two teams play each other. The spirit and camaraderie of the women playing college softball is remarkable. They cheer each other on in ways that, frankly, you'll never see in almost any superior athletes do. They get the concept of team as well as anyone, and their spirit is truly contagious. I dare you not to smile. Well, that's all for this week. Look forward to talking again next week, and please join me for another episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at IIF.com. Make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.